Well, I think certainly in the past 20 years, the perceptions have changed of of how and why women would want to serve. I think when I joined, this is 1992, 93, I told people I was joining the Marines. I said, well, why would you want to do that? That's crazy. Why would you want to put yourself through that? So I thought, well, why not? Why take the easy road, right? So, um, that's my, that's my story. I was just following in the footsteps of my grandfather and my grandmother. And it seemed like a logical thing to do. I wasn't a good student. I had no interest in really, uh, doing well in school. So, uh, not that that equals going into the military, but I just needed a challenge. I think that's what it was. I needed physical challenge. I needed to, um, meet new people and, that was the best way. It was just a calling for me. But in the last 20 years, as you know, prior to 9-11, there wasn't the constant steady state of uh, deploying and women serving. You had tail hope. You had a lot of instances where females were more of a hindrance. And so it was a real challenging time to try to fit in or stand out or be accepted and didn't know the secret handshake. So now I think the the past 20 years have proved that women can, are willing to suit up, kid up, go forward and bear the burden and risk it all just as much as, as men and want that challenge. And so the perceptions have changed, whether it's females um, being fighter pilots or going through ranger school or um, other challenge, uh, taking it to the next level. Um, but I think that why, why would a woman want to serve is if you're patriotic and you want to meet new people and travel and serve your country, those are all just as legitimate questions to ask a young man than as a young woman. And so the burden is all of ours as Americans to serve our country. So however you do that in whatever shape or form is something that all people is the, the game now is not just for the burden is no longer just on men. So um, to be an in infantry, that's not how we're going to we're going to win wars uh, going forward, whether you're um, driving a ship or you're um, a fighter pilot. Um, there are jobs for women that have we've really moved the needle in the last 20 years. I'm Kim Campbell, and I decided that I wanted to be an Air Force fighter pilot when I was in the fifth grade. The reason that idea came about, I think, um, is, I don't know, maybe a bit ironic, but when I was in the fifth grade in 1986, I watched the space shuttle Challenger launch and then 73 seconds later watched the disaster that unfolded. And there was something to me that I connected with in that moment 
of realizing that those astronauts died doing something that they believed in, something that was bigger than themselves, something that was more important than them. And after talking with my parents and trying to figure it out, you know, I realized that that was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to find that passion that I was so committed to that I would be willing to give my life for it. And I also love this idea of this thrill of flight. And I decided that being a pilot and joining the Air Force and then going to the Air Force Academy was the path that I wanted to take. My kids are now of the age where they're talking about what they want to do in their life. And sometimes I look at the things that they're doing or the things that they're saying, and I they scare me in some ways because both of my children have an interest in joining the service. And I think about like, what my parents thought when I told them that I wanted to be a fighter pilot, right? Like that I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. This was 1986. Women weren't actually allowed to be fighter pilots in 1986. They never told me that. Like, I just, I didn't know that that wasn't a thing. And, you know, I think as a parent now, looking back at that and what my parents must have been thinking and going through. And now as a parent, I get to see it with my own children and think about, you know, what it means for them if they decide to serve and how, as a parent, how terrifying in many ways that can be. Recently, Congress has mandated that all branches of the military review policies that restrict female members serve open all their ground combat units to women by the end of this year. And a mandating that we look into fields like infantry or artillery or tanks are areas that females have not... In April 2015, 400 students began a 61-day combat leadership course known as Ranger School. It is considered one of the most elite infantry schools in the U.S. military. For the first time in history, 19 women were allowed to take the course. This is a story of one. My name is Lisa Jaster. I'm originally from Plymouth, Wisconsin, and I'm a major in the Army Reserve. Recently, Congress has mandated that all branches of the military review policies that restrict female members open all their ground combat units to women by the end of this year. Mandating that we look into fields like infantry or artillery or tanks are areas that females have not. In April 2015, 400 students began a 61-day combat leadership course known as Ranger School. It is considered one of the most elite infantry schools in the U.S. military. For the first time in history, 19 women were allowed to take the course. This is a story of one. My name is Lisa Jaster. I'm originally from Plymouth, Wisconsin, and I'm a major in the Army Reserve. My mother has more energy than any woman who's ever walked this earth. And when we were little kids, she used to tell my brother and I all the time, don't ever say I should have, I could have, or I would have. Hi, I'm Scott Deluzio. Uh, I served for about six years in the Connecticut Army National Guard. I enlisted in 2005 as an infantryman. Uh, during that time, I did a deployment to Afghanistan in 2010. Um, that deployment lasted for about 
Uh, it's supposed to last about a year, but it, it for me, it lasted about nine months uh, as I, I got sent home uh, after uh, the death of my, my brother. He was serving overseas as well in Afghanistan. He was killed in action. Uh, so I got sent home uh, right, right about the time when he was killed. Um, and then from there, I uh, continued on uh, in the National Guard for just a little while. Uh, after getting out, I decided I wanted to give back to the military community. I started my podcast, the, the Drive On podcast, which focuses on helping military veterans and currently serving uh, service members who are struggling with one thing or another uh, that, that a lot of us uh, deal with when we come come back home. Uh, it could be PTSD or substance abuse or any number of things. Um, and we, we try to cover all the, the hot topics and and talk about the solutions that, that work for people and, and help people out along the way. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me and, and uh, my background, but I'm sure we'll get into more of that as, as we go along. Fast forward a little bit to uh, the end of August of 2010. Um, our unit was doing these missions where it took us away from our main base and we, we were stationed someplace else and we were doing these uh, missions where we were flying out to these villages where there was suspected Taliban activity and we were doing a joint mission with the Afghan army and we had we were tasked with training them with some of our techniques and some of our uh, uh, ways of doing things for clearing buildings and urban operations and, and stuff like that. And it was a very difficult uh, task to do because it was during the month of Ramadan, which is a Muslim holiday where they, uh, from sunrise to sunset, they don't eat or drink or anything like that. Um, and they only eat and drink at night after the sun has gone down. And so in August in Afghanistan, it's incredibly hot. And our training time was during the day. And if you haven't eaten or drink anything all day, you're not really going to be up for going out and doing training in, in the 120 plus degree heat. Right. So, uh, we'd maybe get an hour out of them at, at most, uh, before they just wanted to go find a shady, cool spot to hang out and and just rest for the rest of the day until they can finally eat or drink something. Um, so it, it that was hard. That was it was almost like herding cats. Uh, like it, it just trying to get them all in one place and actually doing something, uh, especially with the language barrier. We all we were working through a translator. It, it just it was hard. Uh, it was really difficult. Um, but then we would go out on, on these missions and we'd fly out to these remote villages and the Afghan army didn't at the time didn't have any night vision goggles. So we'd have to wait till sunrise to go into these villages. Um, of course, the loud helicopters landing on the mountaintops outside of the villages probably gave away the fact that the Americans were coming in. And so whoever was there likely figured it out in, in the middle of the night and uh, and got away. So a lot of the times we'd go into the villages and, and we wouldn't really find a whole lot. Um, but it was still a useful exercise because it still gave the Afghan army a chance to put into practice the stuff that we were trying to teach them. Um, and, and we were there. I like to make the, uh, uh, 
analogy that we were there sort of as the driver's ed instructor, where uh, the, the Afghan army was behind the wheel. They were going and, and searching door to door, going through the houses and everything. Um, but we were there to pump the brakes if things got a little out of control and we we're there to help out uh, if if need be. So um, so fortunately for, for a lot of these these missions, whoever we were looking for, they they escaped and it didn't get out of control. So so we didn't have that to, to really worry about. What branch were you in? I mean, I know you were in the army, but like, what was your core, your branch? I started out in military police and then ended up in public affairs, which is where I wanted to be. Now, I spent eight years in Germany altogether, two tours. Oh. And the last one was at the Marshall Center, which is in Bavaria, near near, near Munich. I, I was going to ask, have you connected with, she wrote the book, Final Fight, Final Flight. I used that in, in writing this. Oh, Sam, in this book, I have one of the wasps, the only Native American wasp pilot. Oh, wow. Is Barry. Aaron Miller, right? Aaron Miller? No. No, the one, the one who wrote the book. Yes, Aaron Miller. Mm -hmm. Who's that, the only Native American person that she has? Billy Rex wrote. Came into the Air Corps right at the end of it all, right? At the, right in the summer in 1944. So she was in class 44-7 graduated in September, and didn't know the whole program was going to end in December. So here's the dream, the big dream, getting the pilot license, graduating, getting a commercial license from that and a degree, and then it only lasts for four months. Oh, wow, yeah, her life. You know, she, as it did for all of them, there is nobody who lived at that time who wasn't changed. She became an air traffic controller in the Air Force Reserve, but she never flew again because... Those who were the powers to be at the time said, oh, the American public just won't have it. They won't have women pilots. And who were coming home, and so they had to make room for them. So that's why they killed the program. Oh, boy. I know. Yeah. Anytime, like, it starts with, well, the American public says, then I want to respond to, well, the American public needs to put on a uniform then. Whatever. <laughs> there were a lot of things at the time that were different. These women blazed a trail. They were the trailblazers. And after the war, that trail went cold for a number of years before people started to discover it again and to discover them. You know, most of the people I've written about, I only found through the fact that they passed away in, in 2017, 2019. So I'm reading obituaries is how I found them. Some of them were known regionally. You know, the Virginia Beach area, Grand Rapids, Michigan, but a lot of them just weren't all that well-known at all. I think for me, that's part of the reason why I started, not only not only that I started reading biographies and autobiographies about people. When I was in high school, I remember my senior year taking history and him, that very first day, him saying to us, 
the reason why history is part of the curriculum is because history repeats itself. And, and we all were like, well, but it's in the past. Why don't we leave it there? And he said, yeah, if you want to leave it there, learn from it so you don't bring it back up again. That's why you have to learn about it so you know what not to do. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the part that's important. And I, you know, I still kind of felt like that was stupid, but now I don't, <laughs> because I think, I think, I think we can, we can all, you know, learn from mistakes and from our own lives and others' lives. So I think that's what makes me want to read biographies and autobiographies so I can learn from them. Yeah. But, uh, so you... So, so I can, we can record this, um, for, to put it in, and I'll edit out what we've talked about already. Um, but, uh, for the, um, what do you call it? The book, so you're, talk about the event that's going ne on next week and the book that you've written, what it's based off of. So next week, I'm going to be speaking at the Army's Heritage and Education Center in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. This is co-located with the U.S. Army War College there. <clears throat> I'm going to be talking about the book that I have just finished. It's called The Girls Who Stepped Out of Line. So the title came from the Emmy Awards in 2019 when Alex Borstein won the award for Best Supporting Actress. And when she got up, she said, In World War II, my grandmother was about to be shot into a pit. And she turned to the guard and said, so what happens if I step out of line? And he said, well, I don't have the heart to shoot you, but somebody else probably will. So she stepped out of line. And for that, I am here today. And for that, my children are here. So step out of line, ladies. Step out of line. And that's where the title came from. People who take chances, who do something different, the unexpected, and take that one step to make a difference. Awesome. Is um so is this is this something that the event is it uh, a means of promoting women who have served in the military or um just service as a whole? This event is an annual one in recognition of Women's History Month. I just happen to have been asked to participate this year. So there will also be a panel there with me, which is a representative from the resident class of 2021, um, someone from the staff and someone from the faculty. So all together, we will talk about some of the stories in this book, and I will go through just a few of them, and then we will all have a discussion. So it's going to be pretty interesting. Frankly, I'm excited to actually go somewhere live and in person, even if we're all socially distanced and we're feeling <laughs> just so exciting to, to be somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Cabin fever at its best. <laughs> um, so, so without giving away too much, can you give us a sneak peek of um, some of the people you will be highlighting in your discussion? Sure. I'll tell you, I'm going to talk about Betty McIntosh. Betty McIntosh grew up in Hawaii, and she was a reporter because her dad was a reporter. And she wrote about Pearl Harbor. She was probably about 21 when Pearl Harbor happened. And she was there to cover it. She then went to Washington to be a reporter and ended up meeting a friend of her dad's who said, wouldn't you like to do something a little different? And she said, sure. So she ended up in the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, 
which is the predecessor to the CIA today, and to special forces. So when she went into the OSS, she didn't know quite what it was or what it, she was going to be doing, but she wanted to go overseas. She'd been learning Japanese, and she wanted to go. So she got to go overseas, but first to Burma, and then she ended up in China, where she worked in what they called morale operations, what you and I would call info ops, psychological operations against the Japanese, destroying their will to win. And she had some pretty big adventures there. They, one of the things they did was run a radio station, and they had a Chinese man on there who would give predictions. Oh, something bad is going to happen. Something bad is going to happen. He, he was never very specific, or he talked about things that already happened. But one day, they got him to do a new prediction. Oh, something really terrible has happened, and I'm going to happen, and I can't even tell you what it is. Well, the United States dropped the bomb on Hiroshima the following day, and Betty was in trouble because they said, how did you know that? She said, well, I didn't know. I didn't know. I just... But she's at the center of many of the stories in my book because she was connected to so many other people. She knew through the OSS someone who was a spy in France. Her team there in China helped liberate the Japanese internment camps in China. And one of the people they liberated was a 12-year-old girl who had been in prison since she was nine. So I talked about her story. So Betty also knew another person who became a counterintelligence agent who was an army captain. And this is right at the end of the war. And that person went off to Warsaw, Poland, right at the beginning of the Cold War. So she was networked. She was connected. What is it? The two degrees of separation. So I like to tell some of these stories about how in some ways we're all connected and living through times in which things are turbulent, where there's changing areas of our, our lives that we have no control over. Some of them were shocked that things like the Olympics were canceled. Both the 1940 and 1944 Olympics were canceled. We've seen postponements to the Olympics, to Wimbledon, to major global contests and events that haven't occurred since World War II. So it's a great time to be talking about these kinds of stories and what they lived through. Because as much as we think this has been a tough year for us, I can't imagine what they did not knowing when it would end. Even those who went into the military at the time, their orders said for the duration plus six months. However long it takes, you will be there. And that's true of people at that time who were, maybe were not in the military, but their lives were affected too, whether they were happened to be Jewish and living, living in Poland and found themselves in an internment or a, or a concentration camp, or whether they fought in the resistance in Belgium or Holland. So is there to, to participate in if somebody who hears this wants to you know, join or listen to the event, how do they go about doing that? You can look for the website that is the Army Heritage and Education Center. It will be live streamed on their site on March 
the 10th. Oh, I will also be speaking on the same topic at the end of the month of March on the 30th, and this will be at the NSA's Cryptologic Museum, also by Zoom, mm -hmm. and this will be an evening event, and an event oh, tickets for that. Event bright for the tickets. Oh my gosh. Cryptological. For the special. Are we talking about Yes. <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Annette Wittenberger. I joined the Army. I was commissioned as a psycho lieutenant in the Chemical Corps out of Arizona State University back in 1999. I joined the Army actually as a. Out of curiosity, I didn't know I had family that served until years later in my life, which made it even more special. But I kind of just went with the flow. That's not really something I would recommend to everybody, but I, I did. I, I just took it year by year, and I just wanted to see what it was about. And then I ended up serving until I retired. You said you joined out of Arizona State. Yeah, I went to college at Arizona State University. Where did you grow up? I actually grew up in California, in Southern California, in what was a small city back then of Simi Valley. Simi Valley. Your husband, he, is he still in the military? He is. He's still serving, and he is actually based out of Fort Leonard, Missouri. What was life like, not only having a family in the military, but... Your spouse being a service member, too. That was definitely a challenge. We served as dual military for over 17 years. And to raise a family from the beginning as a as lieutenant um, was, was a challenge. He was 18 months my senior. So it, it wasn't like his positions were always more important than mine, but he is because he was eighteen months senior ranking, we had to look at his career first in a sense because we knew he was gonna retire. I had no idea what I was gonna do. I literally just did it year by year. And to have to pick locations where we where we were gonna live based off of childcare and schools and then jobs, that was just so, it was overwhelming and it was frustrating at times because I, there was a time where we were both chosen for command and I didn't know if I wanted command, but I interviewed and got accepted and I was like, hey, I'm going to be in command. And he was in command as well. I was deploying. He didn't know if he was deploying and then all of a sudden he was. So it was, it was just things like that. Like, how are we going to do this? Both of us being deployed. And so it was situations like that that made us uh, really have to think, okay, what are we doing? You know, who's, who, whose career are we going to take, uh, you know, the first seat of? And so it was, it was hard. How old were your kids at the time? They were three and five. Dang. Mm -hmm. And those are some like pretty key times too. It was. It is. Yeah, it was. It was, it was very hard. You retired from the army. What was next? In my mind, I thought I was going to retire at 20. And so when I retired, it was a lot sooner than I had expected. So the plans that I had tried to make, uh, it just fell to the wayside. I was 
trying to adapt to being out of uniform. I was trying to figure out my life. So so then I had six months to transition out. Well, you know, just go through the class, the TAPS class of learning how to write a resume, get my affairs in order, you know, transitioning from the position I was in. It was just all these things that, you know, six months goes by really quick. And I should have been prepared, but I was not because I wasn't, I was really feeling sorry for myself. I wasn't ready mentally at all. I just... I don't know. I, I think I was just trying to mentally prepare for what was to come next. And I didn't know how, you know, I, I really didn't. I was, I just kept going to work, kept doing my job. It, it really was just spent trying to do everything to get out. You know, you have to still turn in your gear. You still have to, you have to do all the, the things to do to out process for, for good. It wasn't like I was moving to another duty assignment. I was, getting out it was very emotional it was a very difficult thing to do it was really hard because I missed it I missed having to get up I say having to because that was what we did we had to get up and go to PT so I missed that structure I missed the camaraderie putting on that uniform so I I really I went through a really dark depression I really did because I felt like I lost my identity I didn't know who I was anymore I was no longer Major Wittenberger. I was just a that. And then I was a military spouse with a dependent ID card, which is really hard for me. It was really weird to be in that position because I just never knew how. And I never really prepared myself for it. So no, I, I, I really, I, I did. I sulked for like six months. I didn't write a resume. I didn't really look for a job. I literally sat on the couch every day. It woke up just to take the kids to school and come back and, and not have a sense of purpose. And so it took me a long time to change roles, put on the different hat and figure out how to be just a mom and not the mom spouse soldier. And, you know, it was just, it, it was really hard. So after, you know, six months or so, I, that's when I decided to start writing my thoughts down because I did not feel like I had an outlet. I had no one to talk to. I didn't think like anybody, that anybody could understand. And I really wanted the pain to go away because it was really, it really hurt. Like in my soul, it really, really hurt to try to figure out what was I going to do because I had no plan anymore. I thought I knew what I wanted, but I felt completely lost. And then after Iraq, I was a brigade commander, and then I made general officer. By then, near the end of my career, my bipolar had gone acute, and I was removed from being the president of National uh, Defense University. So that ended my, um, you know, that really ended my military career. Um, which had been a great career. Uh, it ended kind of bad, but um, I'm lucky I, I lived through it and was alive. And then I went through two years of hell after I fell into depression, delusions, psychosis, and I fought through a mental health disaster. I mean, it was hell. Two years, but I did recover. And for the past five years, I've really been in a very strong, positive, healthy recovery. 